When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and we are delighted to present you all, all for one and one for all public seminar series on mental health in academia and society. All for one and one for all talks will shine a light on and discuss mental health issues in academia across all levels, from students to faculty, as well as in wider society. Uh, seminars are held online once per month on Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Central European time or 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time and free for all to attend. Speakers include academics, organizations, and health professionals whose work focuses on mental health. Live Q&A sessions will be held after each talk. For live webinar schedule, please visit our uh, webpage at Lachuel Lab slash upcoming webinars, or also uh, follow us on Twitter at Lachuel Lab. Our conversation today is between Dr. Julia Dratva and Dr. Hilal Lachuel, as well as me, Galina Limorenko. Welcome everyone and thank you for joining us. Uh, The corona pandemic has impacted the lives of everyone in our society in both predictable and unpredictable ways. It will most likely take years and possibly even decades to realize the full impact of this pandemic on our physical and mental health and how we work, learn and educate in the coming years. Even before the the coronavirus outbreak, COVID-19, Students, advocates, and organizations were raising concerns about and sounding alarms about the growing mental health problems and challenges in academia and universities in particular. Studies carried out in different countries across the globe showed that large percentage of the students, around the 30%, attending universities experienced anxiety, depression, and other serious mental challenges. In early 2002, University students across the globe were confronted with abrupt challenge changes that impacted not only their learning experiences and social life, but also their mental health. In Switzerland, in March 13, 2020, the Swiss government canceled face-to-face educational activities, banned all events involving more than 100 people, decided to partially close its borders, and implemented some border controls. Such sudden changes, disruptions of daily routines, unexpected stressful changes, and the uncertainties they trigger that impact all aspects of one's life can undoubtedly lead to an increase in anxiety, depression, mental stress, and our ability to manage our own emotions. Today, there is consensus that students' mental health is an issue that can no longer be ignored and one that not should receive more attention 
and become a strategic priority for all universities. Previous studies have demonstrated a direct correlation between physiological distress, poor academic performance and career outcomes, in addition to reducing the quality of life. This further underscores the critical importance of why universities should consider the mental health of their students, faculty and staff a strategic priority and begin to invest more time and resources to provide the appropriate support to those affected and to implement actions aimed at preventing or reducing the individual and contextual factors that contribute to triggering physiological distress or amplify mental health challenges. In today's webinar, we plan to put the spotlight on the mental health of students in Swiss universities. And there, is, and there isn't a better or more qualified person to help us address this topic today than our guest, Professor Julia Dratva, who has conducted and published several studies over the past couple of years on student mental health and experiences in Swiss universities during the various waves or phases of the COVID-19 pandemic. Professor Dratva is a specialist in prevention and public health and a professor of public health at the Zurich University of Applied Sciences. There she heads the research area, health sciences at the Department of Health. She's also an associate professor at the medical faculty of Basel and president of the Swiss Society of Public Health Physicians and vice presidents of UUPHA, PHA Child and Adolescent Public Health Section. In addition to her research, which focuses on children and adolescent public health, she has a profound expertise in health monitoring and observational cohort studies. What distinguishes Professor Dratva's work from others in, in the specific areas that she has conducted longitudinal studies Unlike the majority of published studies on mental health and COVID, which are primarily cross-sectional. Her work, as we will learn from her today, has helped identify positive and negative predictors of anxiety, depression, and mental health challenges, and is informing recommendation and practices to help improve resilience and social and educational support to help students, and to ensure that universities are ready to handle not only the long-term ramification of this pandemic, but also be prepared for future challenges and outbreaks. Thank you for joining us today, Professor Dratva. We're looking forward to, to your, your lecture and our discussion. So the format of today's webinar is slightly different. Professor Dratva will give a, a presentation summarizing her work in this area. And then we'll have a conversation followed by a Q&A session from all of you. So please feel free to post your questions, comments during the, the whole session in the chat window. Thank you again for joining us. And thank you again, Professor Dadfa, for making the time to be with us today. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Lashwell. I'm very happy to be here today and to present our data to you. I'll quickly share my slides. Um, let me see, and then go into the presentation mode. Oops, I see. Did that work? Now, I think that should be it, huh? Perfect. So, I'm going to talk to you today about um, the health of Swiss university students during the COVID 19 pandemic. 
and these are our students. I'm from the ZHW, so uh, University of Applied Sciences in Zurich, Switzerland, and we investigated our own studi um, student body. We're a group of uh, professors on public health, but also psychology. And um, I'll quickly introduce the study, which we abbreviate as HESC for health um, in students during the corona pandemic to you and then present some results on preventive and risky health behaviors, as well as mental health outcomes and symptoms. And then to put it all together, I have like three discussion points that we can maybe then uh, use as a starter for discussions. Okay, so this is a, a graph that I would like to use to show you how our study uh, looked like. Um, both from, from the perspective of a study design, but also with respect to its um, longitudinal approach. So um, as you just heard in, uh, in Switzerland, the uh, lockdown was um, started uh, middle to end of March, 23rd of March. And we planned right away a study in our student body and we started two weeks into the lockdown with the first baseline uh, survey uh, here um, indicated with this, this small triangle. And you see these boxes, they represent the semester. So there's a spring semester, then we have autumn semester and another spring semester in 2021. So overall, we covered three, I call them pandemic semesters, uh, in which there was this disruption of um, of the studies and mainly online online uh, teaching. And you can see these triangles down here, they show the number of um, surveys that we did. We did three surveys per semester. The first one was always a bit longer. Uh, and then we had two follow-up surveys throughout the semester. And so overall we have nine time points in, this, in these one and a half years that we have data on our students. We, uh, had our main study questions were to understand if and how the pandemic impacts students' educational, but also their everyday lives. Um, we wanted to measure their mental health and resilient and scoping skills and address ongoing changes. Um, so when there were changes in the pandemic, due to the pandemic, we tried to pick them up in our surveys and uh, find out how students uh, dealt with them. Our questionnaire was, uh, had a health part uh, next to the social demographic variables, of course. So our health part mainly focused on mental health using validated um, uh, questionnaires that are also used in clinical contexts. Uh, but please, these are of course survey questionnaires, instruments, this is not a clinical diagnosis, but they're, they're, they're very good instruments. And we also used instruments that um, are used um, uh, on resilience and self-efficacy, social capital. We asked about general health, health behaviors. And then we had a, a, a part on COVID. So how, you know, COVID symptoms, how did they use tests, were the tests positive, the impact on their studies, impact on everyday life, social life, impact on finances, but also their concerns regard to COVID, concerns about health, concerns about financial issues. And lastly, also here, compliance with the measures or trust in authorities. And as I said, timely topics 
were, for example, insecurities that arose throughout these pandemic semesters or also the topic of vaccination. <clears throat> so you remember we did these nine surveys and we were, uh, and, and these surveys were cross-sectionals, um, but students could repeatedly participate. So we always sent the surveys to every student. So we had a mailing list about 13,000 students and, um, and the participation rate varied between 10 and 20%. But overall, at the end of three semesters, we had reached about 70% of the students, meaning that at least 70% at least participated once in the survey. And there was a number of students also that participated two or three times. So we have cross-sectionals, but also a longitudinal approach, um, which we kind of see as an open cohort design. Interestingly, and also happily so, each cross-sectional sample was very comparable. So we consider our cross-sectionals to be representative. For one, because they're very similar to the data that we have from the university data. So what, what the university tells us how the distribution uh, about you know, gender distribution or age is, but also because they are so similar. So if you look at these pie charts, for example, which represent the faculties that participated, so the students uh, gave us their faculties, you can see that they're very similar. So across these nine surveys, we had similarities in the distribution across faculty, but also regarding the distribution of gender and age. So the mean age was always around 26.5 or 27. We have a slightly uh, over-participation of, of females, um, which is, is, is rather typical for surveys. Okay, I'll just head into first results from there on. Um, and I'd like to start off with our uh, results on the COVID-related preventive and risky health behaviors. Here we, uh, I present data from a study that we published and here I rely on data from our very first survey in which 2,373 students participated. And we asked them here, do you follow the recommendations on? And that's an instrument that we used and adapted according to the pandemic recommendations and containment measures. Uh, for the analysis, we focused on social activities and mobility because those were the items where students had most difficulties with. And we were interested in gender and age differences um, among other factors. So just um, for, well, memory's sake, Take. These are the containment measures that were uh, recommended uh, at uh, our baseline survey in March or early April. And I highlighted the ones that we then did analysis on, which are maintaining distance to other persons, avoiding unnecessary journeys uh, by public transport, avoiding gatherings of more than five people and staying at home. Actually, we also used not leaving the house if possible. Um, this is a table where we show the results. Um, we asked, do you follow these recommendations? And I put, uh, I highlighted here in red, the, the answers where students said, I never or rarely follow this recommendation. And you can see that this percentage is overall rather low. It lies between 1.4 to 4.7, with an exception of not leaving the house if possible. So that was, that was a recommendation that was really hard for students to follow, um, as was maintaining distance to persons. 
So about 5% said that's something I never or rarely do. On the other hand, we see a very high compliance um, with the containment measures. Now, this is the result of the logistic progression. And as the table is rather um, intense, I kind of point out here on the side, which are the main results. Um, we wanted to know which um, factors, socio-demographic, uh, socio uh, but also other characteristics are associated with non-compliance. And one of the main results was that there's a gender um, association. So males uh, had a higher um, risk um, or higher odds to, to not comply. Um, age was a factor. So the, uh, the, um, the older age uh, or the, the older students uh, complied better. The information source played a role. So people who used public health or um, health information sources complied better. The concern that people felt with regard to COVID health concerns uh, played a role and also trust. So we see these are factors that with which we can also use protectively and preventively if we want to increase compliance. Yep, I'll go through there. Um, now, coming from the compliance, we move to the question, how did, how did next to these impact on their social mobility, for example, uh, that the compliance measures caused, how did COVID impact on their studies and, and, and their social life other, to, other, other than that? And again, I show you a complex graph and I highlighted a few aspects that I would like to uh, point out. Um, maybe just to help you ex uh, read the graph better, the color code, so blue and yellow would stands for agreeing with the statement that we, we gave them and gray is partly and then orange and light blue is do not agree. So when we look from the top down, we always see the people up to yellow, they agreed um, or rather agreed to our statement. What we found is, and that we found strongly in the first semester, especially, that students um, reported that their life structure had changed. So their study table had changed, the life structure had changed. Also in the qualitative they, um, remarks, they said, well, we don't really know when to get up. And so they really had difficulties with the, with the life structure change. They also agreed with a, with a statement that they were lacking social contacts to fellow students. On the other hand, and that's something positive, is that most, the majority, more than 80% agreed that they enjoyed time, having time with their families. So that's something that we also saw a lot in the general population that people said they, they enjoyed the time that they had with, with near ones. Um, from this table, you see that there are some statements where the blue and the yellow line are very, are very large. So there's a large majority that agrees. But you also see that for other statements, there's a division. So it's really a half-half thing. And two, of, uh, two statements where we see this is the question on how did self-study, how, how did they experience the increase in self-study? For some, this was a huge challenge. And for others, that was easy. And when we saw these differences in, in the way students reacted to these changes, we realized that there are probably different groups that we have to consider when we do our analysis. So what we did, we, did, we, we ran a latent class analysis 
to identify these distinct groups um, and with respect to the impact, so the subjective impact that the students felt due to the pandemic. And in fact, we found three groups, one which, which we, we call the, the low impact groups. So these are students that said, well, I, have, I don't feel a lot of impact. Uh, so they would tend to not agree with the impact statements. We have a moderate impact group and we have the high impact group. And when we use the latent class analysis to look at these statements or the impact that we ask them about, we see there's a clear pattern. And so this is really a nice differentiation of our student body. Just look at these examples, for example, the question here in this, um, this one uh, graph is how are you doing at the moment? And the low impact group shifts, their response shifts to good and very good, while the high impact group, group their responses shift to fair, poor, and very poor. So we have these clear distinctions in these groups. And we see that for a lot of questions, also for higher proportion of self-study, for example, you always see you know, the, these, these groups differ in their pattern. And we use these latent classes then in our later analysis, and I'll come back to them. So we looked at protective behavior. Now let's look at risky health behavior. And we were interested in the risk behavior, smoking, alcohol, and marijuana. Smoking actually didn't provide such a change, but for alcohol and marijuana, we did find very interesting um, changes. So here we use the baseline data at T0, and we used the first two follow-up surveys uh, in which we asked also uh, on these risk behaviors. And what we, what we found was that 80% um, of our student bodies said, I drank alcohol in the 30 days past. So that was a pre-lockdown period. So that's the baseline um, alcohol consumption. And we asked how many drinks they drank as well. And 77% said an average one to two beverages on such an occasion, but we also had 31% who reported binge drinking, which is more than five beverages at an occasion where you drink. Then we asked them about, then we looked at the change. So at the survey follow-ups, we said, again, we asked the same questions, how much and how often did you drink in the last 30 days? And that allowed us to investigate the increase or the change uh, in alcohol consumption. And while a good half consumed as much as usual, we see that 18% consumed more and 25% consumed less. Similarly, those who smoked marijuana, there we saw uh, that about 27%, so about a third consumed more during the lockdown uh, and 11% consumed less. And again, about a half consumed as usual. So we see there are changes in both directions. In this further analysis, we were interested to understand, so who drinks more or who smokes more and what could a factor be that explains these differences in, in behaviors during the lockdown and in the consequent surveys. And what we did is we, we investigated the baseline drinking behavior. So how many drinks did people drink at baseline pre-lockdown? And we see in this very first graph and below down here, total number of drinks. And on the vertical side, it's the probability that you drank more during, um, at the survey, at the follow-up surveys. And we see there's a clear, clear trend 
the more you drank at baseline, so the more alcohol you consumed, usually prior to the pandemic, the more you increased your alcohol consumption during the, the lockdown and during the pandemic. We have two lines here. The first the, with, with, the, with the, the dark one indicates the association at the first survey, which was in the lockdown still. And the second one was after the lockdown, but still um, I, the schools were still closed. And we see luckily that the second survey, the increase in consumption already went back down. Okay, so but we see a strong impact of the lockdown uh, on alcohol consumption. And here, the second graph you see, we use the latent classes to understand if this change in alcohol consumption had also to do with the impact that the students perceived. And we see there is an association between the higher impact that students perceived and their increase in consumption of alcohol. These two graphs are actually show the same, but for marijuana. And again, now we look at the days that they used to smoke prior to the lockdown and the increase uh, probability. And again, we see that the more frequently people smoke prior to the lockdown, the more increased behavior they would show during the lockdown. So again, a clear association. On the other hand, the impact, the, the, the latent classes here do not show the association that we would have assumed. In fact, we see that the people with a lower impact smoked had a higher risk of smoking more than prior to the lockdown. But I think this nicely shows that not only the impact was relevant, but the, the, the fact that this school, that the lockdown occurred and your previous alcohol consumption or Mariana consumption was predictive of your, your um, lockdown consumption. Yeah, I think I, I, I mentioned the, these, these uh, points already. So I can move on. I'd like to now talk about anxiety. We investigated anxiety and we published um, three studies, um, three papers on this, and I will report on, on some of our results. Um, so first one, we really looked at cross-sectional. On our very first survey, we, so this is a cross-sectional sample um, in the lockdown early on, and we used this, this general anxiety disorder scale seven, which is a score. Um, which allows you to kind of differentiate in minimal, mild, moderate, and severe anxiety symptoms. And what we see here is in, in the overall sample, we had 16% of students who reported symptoms that would um, confer with, with a moderate uh, anxiety level, and 6.4% uh, showed a severe anxiety level. Now, when we used, when we looked into our latent classes, we see a very different picture and it kind of underlines how important it is to understand that there are different groups of students and that depending on how the pandemic impacted you subjectively, you might have really different reaction to it. Because what we see is that um, we have a far higher uh, impact or we have a far higher uh, prevalence of anxiety, severe and moderate anxiety in those people who felt a strong impact. So latent class one, which was actually 27.5% of our study of our sample, they uh, had, um, had, a low, had a low risk. So they had like their mean sum score was 3.6, while the latent class two, that was 45% of the student body, they had a mean point score of six, 
and late in class three, the heavy impact, they had a mean score of 10, which is already the level where we talk about moderate, um, moderate anxiety. And actually they had an increased um, risk of, of uh, so they had a, they had a a prevalence of 70, uh, 53, sorry, 53%. So a really strong level of anxiety in these people who felt the subjective high impact. Okay. Um, again, here we were interested, of course, in, in other factors that we can consider that we have to take into account. So we, we ran uh, regression models, um, both linear using the score, but also logistic using uh, cutoffs. Um, and we see, as I already reported, that latent classes uh, so the subjective impact score, uh, the subjective impact groups were really important. We see late in class three, the high impact had um, an increased, um, uh, this is a better, let's take this one, increased odds of being moderate to severely, um, severely um, ang anxious of 22. So this is really enormous increase of risk uh, in, in these people of experiencing a moderate to severe anxiety. But also gender played a role. Um, men showed a lower anxiety level um, than females. Age played a role, um, but very marginal increase in, in, in asthma, one must say, even though it is uh, significant. And, and the faculty played a role. Uh, we did from time to time see faculty differences. And that's also why I'll show you to that, show you that um, later we once also did an anal analysis looking at health professions and non-health professions because we assumed that that might be the explanation from time to time. So for anxiety, I think the main message, message here is really we saw, these, we saw these strong impact on anxiety levels. Uh, we had no prior um, population data on anxiety levels, but we could see that depending on the subjective impact of COVID, we see a far greater impact on anxiety, which kind of shows that this is a COVID impact uh, and a COVID um, caused by COVID. So the next topic would be depression. And for depression, uh, we um, again used, could use various data because we asked this also more than once. Um, and here, this is a study that we published where we looked, where we used data from April 2020 and from October 2020. So that was the autumn semester. Um, here we used the uh, patient health questionnaire, uh, PHQ, which is an instrument that asks uh, different depressive symptoms or symptoms that are associated with depression. Um, and this is a score. This is not a clinical diagnosis. But one says that if somebody has a score above nine, you can speak of, a clinical rele of clinically relevant sim symptoms, okay? So depressive symptoms. Yeah, so this is, um, this is uh, a first um, picture of, of what we found. Um, in this analysis, we had the possibility to take data, Swiss data that already existed. And that was really nice because it allowed us to show that um, we have an increase in depressive symptoms. Um, the Swiss National Health Survey in 2017 asked um, and used the same, um, same instrument, the PHQ. So we, could, we constructed a matched sample, matched for age, gender, and sociodemographic variables. 
and could then compare this matched sample with our student body. And what you see here is the SHS column, that's the Swiss National um, Health Survey from 2017, and the HSC, that's our data. And when we now move to the highlights, which are here in blue, um, we have the moderate depressive symptoms with a score above, above nine. Um, and we see that in the, in the Swiss survey 2017, there was a prevalence of 8%, while in our study body, we had a prevalence of 20% or 21%. So a threefold increase uh, with regard to moderate depressive symptoms. And we see a similar increase for moderate severe, okay? So this is, is I think, a very nice, even though not nice result, of course, that we can show that we actually have a COVID impact here. And this for women as well as for men. Um, now, just using our student body data, we then again looked for, for factors that are associated with, with um, depression in, during COVID. And again, we find gender, we find age, here we also find the impact of nationality. Non-Swiss had a higher risk of developing depressive symptoms. Uh, luckily, we see a, a protective impact from resilience uh, and, and social support. So these are, um, these are positive um, results showing that, there's a, that these are very nice protective factors. Um, and we also see that concerns again uh, a high level of health concerns with regard to COVID is associated with increase in depressive uh, symptom score, which I don't, you don't see on this, um, on this um, slide, but also uh, in the continuation of this logistic regression, we would also see that binge drinking, marijuana, and physical inactivity play a role as well for uh, and are associated with an increased risk in depressive symptoms in students. Um, so summing that up again, we see these depressive symptoms, we see the increase, threefold increase with regard to older data and something I didn't show, but I'll come back to later when I show you longitudinal data, we did not see a change between April and October. So the level of depression in the early pandemic was just as high um, in, the, in the later pandemic. I'll now come to, uh, to the longitudinal perspective. And for that, and to kind of show you how how beautiful our data are, uh, is, is, is this, this slide. Um, I'll have to quickly um, explain it to you. What you see here is the time period from January 2020 to August um, 21. So this covers our, our survey period from, from April to, to June. And you see our surveys up here, T1, uh, T0 to T8. And the lines kind of help you orientate yourself when were the surveys done over this time period. What you also see in this slide is the stringency index. I don't know if you know about the stringency index. This is an index that um, calculates how stringent the containment measures in this respective country were at the time. And so if the stringency index is zero, like here in January 2020, when we did not have a pandemic in Switzerland yet, there was no containment measure applied at all. And if it were 100, this would be a complete lockdown. Everybody's in their homes and doesn't 
doesn't go out. So we have variation in the stringency of our containment measures. And you see this very nicely across the time, how the stringency changes. Uh, there was a um, loosening of the containment measures here in summer, for example, and then it went back up again. And, and the other, what you see here is, is, is uh, the cases of COVID in, in blue, and then you have the, the deaths so the, uh, in, of COVID in red. And this gives you a picture when our surveys were done and that we actually had surveys at various time points, allowing us to kind of also understand our longitudinal data um, and referring our longitudinal data to specific uh, stringent times or less stringent times, which is important when you look at anxiety over time or depression over time, for example. So this just for you to, to see how, how, um, how our, our survey um, was aligned or was kind of actually covered these different phases. So now let's look at longitudinal data. The GAD7 is the anxiety, the general anxiety index, and we asked that repeatedly, as you can see in almost all surveys with exception to T2. And let's look at this blue highlighted part down here, which the two lines represent here the dotted line, the moderate anxiety level and the, the lowest line, the severe anxiety level. And you can see, I re remember I showed you the very initial data on anxiety in the, in the baseline, which was already high. It dropped in the first semester and we were actually quite happy about this when we, when we, when we analyzed the data, but then it went back up again and it stayed high throughout the last two semesters. So we see that anxiety was high in the beginning. There was a relief at the end of the lockdown in, in, in March, April, May, and then anxiety in students went up again and continued to be high. This is also a longitudinal measurement where we compare health professionals with non-health professionals. There's a lot of studies that say health professionals had an increased stress because they were exposed to COVID in clinics, et cetera, and our students partly were exposed, but we see that our health professionals actually could deal with, it seems they could deal better with the, the pandemic condition. They show over the whole time, they show a lower anxiety level than the non-health professions. This is depression. And I think my second last slide. Um, and again, you see that there is a change but a increase of depression over time. So T0 and T3, that's April and October. I had just shown you the results there with these high depression, the threefold increase of depression, but you can see in our last semester, it even went higher than that. So there was an increase of depression over the three semesters. And similarly to that, we see that loneliness increased. This is a uh, unpublished slide, um, but uh, it says here that uh, they agree or completely agree to the statement, I am lonely. And here also you see the last semester, or, or, or this is the second semester actually, um, the autumn semester of 2020, we have uh, a high percentage of people who feel very lonely. I come to the end. I would like to um, kind of pull this into three thoughts. One is how generalizable are our data? 
I have to say, of course, we used we, we investigated students. The students that we investigated are probably not different to any other student in Switzerland, but they might be different to other people in the same age group who are already in working life, who um, are doing an apprenticeship. But for the student bodies across Switzerland, I think we could say we're probably very representative. Um, I think it's important to, to, to point out that we find different risk groups. We find factors that are associated with increased mental health conditions or with, with behaviors. And we also see that the student body isn't homogeneous. So we have to differentiate the student body when we address these, these, uh, these issues. And the last is, I think, um, the, the point of preparedness. We have to learn from what we what we went through, and we have to realize that we have to be prepared for crises in future. This is going to happen in some way or another. This might happen again. So we really have to be prepared and take these data and learn from them and adapt uh, our university and society to be more resilient. Thank you very much. That's what I wanted to share with you. Continue. Excellent. Thank yeah. you so much. Yep. Yeah. And we have Hilal unmuted. Yeah, thank you very much for this really uh, insightful presentations. I mean, some of the, the fact that you highlighted are things we can sense and experience every day in university and interacting with our students. But it's, uh, it has very different impact when you begin to see the numbers. And it's very interesting for me how some things sort of change during the course of the pandemic where others like depression remains uh, constant. Just one question to clarify with respect to your last uh, slide and the, the generalizability of the data. Are you aware of any other studies uh, that were conducted in Swiss universities uh, addressing mental health uh, during the pandemic? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm aware of one other study. Um, it's it's uh, was the ETH in Zurich. Um, they published, um, a paper on on, uh, on on a student study. That was a study that had, they also have longitudinal data, but in a far smaller sample. Um, and they found similar results with regard to anxiety. Um, their pre-lockdown, they had pre-lockdown data, and then they had at least what, what they published so far was one lockdown, um, uh, one lockdown survey, and they also saw an increase in anxiety. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you, in, in your study or any other studies that were carried out in other countries, looked at how the different groups with respect to the stage of education, you know, were affected? For example, you know, the, the, the getting into starting in a university for people the first year, it's a completely transformative experience. It's a way to adulthood, it's a way to independence. It's, you know, so to for people who had to start during this period, it must have been a, you know, I would expect that the impact would be much higher. The same can be said for groups who were about to finish and graduate, you know, because their uh, sort of prospect for getting a job and career advancement uh, were dramatically impacted. I was wondering whether you have you know, dissected the data to look at these two different groups or looked at this? You're, you're absolutely right. I, would, I would, would assume the same that especially the second semester where students 
started in a started in the online mode uh, in their first semester. So they didn't even have a chance of well remembering how how uni was, you know, pre 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 pandemic. Um, actually, we 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 asked for for their semester. We asked if they were bachelor or master, and we used them in some of the regressions, and we didn't find strong effects, but we found age effects, and maybe this was actually then that you know kind of um, confounded there. So so that we put in both, maybe we couldn't see it. Um, but I just showing you the data today, I thought we have to look at the second semester and just look at the second semester separately once more. Because if you remember, there was this jump in, um, in loneliness. Um, and, and that could be, of course, that, that, right? That could be that we had, that this is the first semester effect. But we tended to have people throughout all semesters. So it's hard for us, probably, you know, it's a question of power also, if we have enough power to identify the impact on, but I'll check it again. I think it's an important point. Um, yeah. And, and the other thing, the, the ones that, that kind of were at the end of their studies, uh, we didn't look at them separately for, for health uh, with regard to mental health, but we captured some of their insecurities. So we captured them with the statements, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I won't get a job or I'm, I'm, I might not be able to finish my, my, my studies as planned. So there were insecurities there. And we're currently working on qualitative data on insecurities. So we will, uh, that we actually asked them in our last survey, we asked them what makes you insecure in view of the pandemic and in view of your future. So we're working on uh, dissecting those data currently. In, in your study, in several of your papers, you sort of sought to decipher and identify sort of uh, positive and negative predictors of anxiety, depression, and mental health. Uh, can you expand on the value of identifying these factors and the potential of using the potential use of predictors for prevention of anxiety-related disorders or mental health problems? Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. I, I mean, there, there are two sides to it. For one, I think we see that resilience, coping skills, social support are protective factors. Now, you can say this is not new. We know that. I mean, there, there's evidence that these are protective factors. But we can see that these are protective factors in such a crisis situation and in these young, uh, these young people. So from a preventive point of view, I think we have to think about as universities, how can we strengthen resilience? How can we strengthen social support in our universities among students, among students and lecturers? Um, I, I think that's something to think about because it, it goes beyond you know, just being pandemic resilient. It goes into being resilient for any crisis, be it a professional one or a personal one later in life. So I think that's worthwhile kind of showing this. Um, under these circumstances. And the other is that we see that, that there are certain groups that um, might need uh, some more focus. Um, the gender effects that we, that we found are in line with what's, what literature shows. So we didn't find a surprise there. We see, um, we see expected gender differences. But maybe when we do campaigns that will help us to address people more directly, right? 
Um, and the other thing is what I really thought was a striking uh, result was this, uh, that the baseline consumption of alcohol, for example, is a predictor for how you, how you react in crisis, how you react um, in, in under stress. And that's also something that we, 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 we should try to address, be it with campaigns, be it with, with, um, with, with offers, you know, we have students who have a, who might have already have an alcohol problem. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, the same with eating disorders and, uh, and other problems. Uh, uh, I think, you know, when it comes to resilience, I wanted to ask sort of, what do you think are some of the things that universities and maybe, you know, faculty and people who interact with the students could do to help in sort of in terms of training students and, uh, you know, sort of enhancing their coping and resilient skills. And whether this is something that perhaps we shouldn't wait until students get to university to teach them, should be something you know, that is, you know, taught both also at home, you know, and then uh, over the years. Yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, resilient or, or is, is, is the, the competency or the, the, the fact that you can deal with, with difficult situations better, that you have a better outcome than a less resilient person, right? So to think about, and, and what helps there? So I think social contact always help, good relationships uh, with people that you can, that, that are a resource to you when, when, you, when something goes wrong. Um, so I think developing social skills, communicative skills, emotional skills is always a strength, always strengthens resilience. Um, a big topic is mindfulness in these past years, uh, which is something that um, we actually tried at the ZW to, to, to improve or to address during the pandemic. So there were like online courses on mindfulness. I don't know how well they were attended uh, since people normally don't have the time for these things, right? So the question is, do we give do we give these aspects enough priority um, in our, you know, in our private lives, in our professional lives, um, in, in when we raise our children uh, in school? So maybe that's a thought to follow up on. So you, in, in, in the presentation, again, some of your work, you address this issue of, of sort of compliance by young uh, people and particular university students to the to the rules uh, imposed and the lockdown and preventive measures. And the numbers were very interesting in the sense that, you know, there's large percentage of, of the, uh, you know, we're not in compliance. So you recommended that, you know, there is a need of targeted sort of communication approach uh, to the youth. Do you feel that uh, this was not sufficiently done during the pandemic and if it was, you know, what do you think is the best way to, to do this? Maybe first, yeah, I was actually impressed, but then you hear, you know, how well they, how, how compliant they were. Of course, we have to consider there might be a little bit of social desirability in answering these questions, right? They know what's expected from them. But, but nevertheless, I think this was actually quite, quite considerable. Um, on the other hand, um, in another study that we've been doing uh, called COVID-DISC, where we investigated how uh, young people um, perceived the media attention that their age group got throughout COVID, 
uh, we realized that they didn't feel addressed really. I mean, very early on, young people were told, well, you're not concerned, but you have to behave, right? That was the message. And that's the wrong message. If there's a crisis, such as a pandemic, everybody's concerned. And everybody's concerned in their own right. And they might have different concerns. Um, and, and so I think that was, a, that was an initial um, flaw in the campaign, telling certain people, you're not concerned, but you have to behave. And, and that's not a good message. Yeah, I was actually pleasantly surprised in, in the fact that even within, I, I believe if the, the, correct me if I'm wrong, that the number, the percentage of students who were concerned were about 50% in terms of about their health and the others just, you know, felt that, you know, they probably get infected and get over it. But the great majority of the students had quite a lot of concerns about their family, their grandparents and their you know, something that Aki, you know, sort of they thought about quite a lot during uh, the lockdown uh, period. And I think one thing in terms of messaging that sort of have been overlooked is the fact that we're dealing with this beast that we still don't understand the long-term consequences. I mean, the idea that young people can get sick and get better quickly and go back to normal life is not necessarily true. So from the long-term health perspective, you know, we don't know what, you know, what, whether people are infected will potentially be more predisposed to other diseases. So should have been the message should have been it's better not to get infected at all and, uh, for all age groups. Uh, so you, you also, just before we move to the next part, highlighted that in terms of targeted approaches that uh, non-Swiss nationalities, international students were a particular group. And uh, that sort of makes sense from the point that, you know, they're isolated, they're away from their family. And uh, many of them, for example, like students from China who could not go back because you know, the, they would have to quarantine for several weeks and they were, you know, out of touch for more than a year with their family. But you, you, you highlight that it's important to, to continue to monitor and do more research on these groups. Could you elaborate on this? You mean specifically on the on the on the international um, students? Yeah, I mean we saw actually we saw the effect only only in depression. We didn't see an anxiety, which kind of you know kind of shows that it's it's not that they're more anxious. You know they, but it's really about um, probably the the loneliness and 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 the isolation that occurs when you're in a foreign country and um, you don't have the social network that you can resort to uh, locally. Um, I, I just wonder, if, just thinking about what can university do, I think um, it, yes, I think sometimes you have to address groups differently and just say, hey, we know you're in a more difficult, you know, time than others right now, you have more difficulties, try to help them network amongst them, try to, I don't know, we have a PhD student who came during the lockdown and left during <laughs> you know, a crisis, uh, a really difficult time. So that was really hard for some people to, to then um, connect socially. And I think we, we can help um, providing structures. Would probably be helpful also outside of a pandemic to provide newcomers structures to, um, to integrate uh, socially. So I know we've discussed this topic uh, on several occasions, you know, 
together and, and, and the idea that addressing mental health in academia requires more of a holistic approach, you know, that addresses not only the mental health of the students, but also, you know, the entire community, i.e. the faculty, the staff and this. I was wondering whether, you know, have you looked at this in terms of the role of the, the professors, the teachers, uh, or what are your views on, on, on this topic? Well, we didn't investigate the, the lecturers or the staff uh, at, at university. Uh, we addressed the, a little bit the relationship that students had with, with lecturers in, in, in like we introduced a statement, um, you know, my, my lecturer has, has time for me um, or, you know, I can, I can contact him or her when, when I have difficulties and kind of seeing that that actually, you know, that, that, that didn't shift anywhere drastically. So, so that, I think that was still okay. In our qualitative analysis, or let's say in our qualitative parts, because students could always give us messages and write down what they were concerned about. And, um, and of course that's not representative, right? But there, some students were, were a bit unhappy about the strictness in some of the um, ways that university dealt with exams or, um, I, I would hear people say, well, they expect extreme high flexibility from us students, but they're not so flexible vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, to our needs. And, and um, so I think uh, it's worth to maybe discuss this experience, you know, among lecturers, among um, responsibles with students. How did they experience it? How could we, you know, what could we have done to improve their situation? Yeah. Elena, you want to? Uh, yes, well, thank you so much uh, for such an interesting uh, presentation. It was so really great. So um, I was wondering whether, what do you think the mental health issues are not being addressed very well in academia at the moment? And what are the approaches for us to actually turn this around? Oof. Um I mean, academia is 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 can be quite stressful and studying can be quite stressful. I don't know if you can take stress out of life and if that is, is, is the aim, but um, we can, um, well, we can teach to deal with it better or to identify prior, you know, your, your personal priorities better to understand where are you prepared to sacrifice um, time and, and energy. Yeah. Um, it's, 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 I think it's difficult um, to, to, to really pinpoint. Um, I, I wouldn't say there's one issue that we have to, you know, address. It's more like a general thing. I mean, we, we see that mental health issues are increasing worldwide. It's, it's not only an academia problem, right? But we see that. And, and um, so it's something to address as a society. Yes, and I probably actually uh, was quite surprised when I looked through your study on depressive symptoms in Swiss university students that uh, more than a quarter of uh, the students actually reported depressive symptoms, which is uh, very much higher than the general population. So why do you think the academic community is so disproportionately affected compared to the general population? So you already mentioned stress, for example. But do you think maybe the system itself perhaps needs a bit of a shift 
uh, from mm-hmm. individual to more of a systemic approaches to tackle these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, well, maybe first a, a correction. Our data are purely pandemic data. Okay, so that the prevalence that we found um, probably was not as high if we had asked the same questions, you know, some months prior to that. And that's why we introduced these national survey data, the Swiss data from 2017, kind of show that we see an increase during the pandemic. Um, Now, if we go back to the 2017 data, which was also, I mean, a matched sample, so highly educated um, representative sample in that age group, uh, there was an 8% prevalence of moderate to severe depression. Also not not nothing, right? I mean, that's that's almost 10%. One in 10 who shows uh, depressive symptoms that are clinically relevant. Um, so, so yes, if uh, as we see populations um, show an increase in in, in um, mental health problems, and uh, the the latter data indicate that 20% of the population have a mental health problem at some time, time point between zero and 25, that's quite considerable. So yes, I think it does need a systemic, um, systemic approach. Mm-hmm. And also with regards to your studies, so do you think we should have more integrated approach of uh, surveys on a national level, for example, to really get a good picture of what is going on? Uh, absolutely. Um, yes, I think, I mean, we have there are some studies uh, on, on mental health, of course. Um, and, and we have uh, studies in, in like the national survey, which, which ask about, uh, about mental health. Um, the data situation actually is the poorest in children and adolescents. Um, starting your, your third decade, data get better. <laughs> but, but, um, but it's worthwhile having good data if you try to change something on a system a system base because we also want to see that there's an impact so we actually need monitoring uh, we need to see how things develop um, to also um, evaluate the, the the interventions that we would then and that then then happen and are done mm-hmm. so maybe you need to close with, with a few um, comments and questions so you know giving that you've sort of sharing this data both in publication and publicly and in meetings. Uh, has this changed anything? I mean, do you see that, um, you know, there is, that universities are taking this more seriously or uh, has this changed the university's approach? You know, the, the pandemic has only helped highlight this is the, the challenge. You know, that already existed. What I'm trying to see is have you seen a change, mm-hmm. a meaningful change in how universities try to address this problem? Not yet, really. <laughs> I, I think I think people who are in charge for you know um, mental health services of students or in charge of, of health promotion, um, they, they've they've seen the data. They realized that there was a problem or that there might still be a problem. Um, but, but I think currently the, the, the feeling is, okay, that was COVID. And once COVID is gone, everything's going to be fine again. So I think it's, it's up to us to kind of also look into what's happening after 
know, what's what what do we see in the after COVID phase, whenever yeah. that starts? You know, but the studies from the UK, the US, and many places around the world, even before COVID, right, have, have highlighted you know the, that this is a serious problem in, in academia. Uh, and you know that's only focusing on the students uh, population within universities. Uh, I think so far, at least from what the experience that I can can speak of, it's it's a very um, it really depends on 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 the institute on the department. Um, it's not a concerted um, action that's being taken across universities. Uh, so it's maybe still a very individual um, engagement. If, if, if a head of department says uh, they're going to change something. But of course, let's also see it. We have, I mean, almost all, I'm sure every university in Switzerland has some kind of offer to students um, that, um, that, uh, that are, have difficulties, that need help, that need support. So um, it's not that we have nothing. Um, and, and these tend to be... Um, uh, for free, and if people need students need longer uh, treatment or longer therapies, they get the help to find a th find such a such a therapy. So I think our services are are good. Maybe we have to um, enlarge them. Maybe we have to increase the capacity that we have. Uh, probably we have to inform students better that it's fine to use them. There might still be, you know, the risk of stigma. Um, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I completely agree with you. I think, you know, most universities have some form of counseling, guidance and assistance, uh, usually not enough based on student testimonies, but uh, a lot of students are also, you know, do not make good use of these services because the stigma. So, so I think, uh, you know, fighting the stigma associated with mental health and probably having more of a community based approach where it's not viewed as only a student problem because it's definitely not. And people realize that, uh, you know, everyone in university experience uh, mental health challenges on a daily basis, you know, different times and to different levels. But I like the idea of, you know, understanding what are the very specific factors that trigger this in different population, because that's the, I think that's where we need a bit of more uh, studies, understanding the relationship between the different stakeholders, you know, the students, the faculty, the staff. When you look at survey studies on graduate students, you find that graduate students, professor interactions are key determinants of satisfaction and mental health. And so I think there is probably you need quite a bit of more research into this to be able to develop effective strategies and to educate people how to recognize, uh, you know, when they cross a certain threshold and uh, or part of that mental health, you know, challenges spectrum, and when they need to get, to to get help and be comfortable uh, to to ask for assistance and support. Well, I think from my side, you know, I thank you again for, uh, first of all, championing this uh, topic and, and, and doing this uh, outstanding work to try to, to provide us with the right facts and numbers to help in sort of the development of effective strategies and policies to tackle this. 
we wish you the best in your work and look forward to following more work coming from your group. And thank you again for being with us today. It has been a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. The pleasure was all mine. It was great. Thank you very much. Thank you. We look forward to continue working. Thanks for joining us today. And thank you to all our viewers and listeners. And we hope to see you next time.